You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 21. John chapter 21 is the text of scripture that we just had read earlier in the service. We'll be looking at the entire chapter today on this Easter Sunday. One of the unchanging realities about life is that people change. People can change for the better and people can change for the worse. People can change gradually over time and people can change in an instant. People can change intentionally and people can change subconsciously. People can change in response to their circumstances and people can change their circumstances in response to the changes that have happened within them. Change is inevitable. Every day that passes brings change in our lives because you're one day older And you're either one day wiser or one day more foolish. You're one day closer to your death. That is certain. A lot of us don't like change because change brings uncertainty. And uncertainty means often that we lose control over our lives. But God, God is different. The Bible teaches that God doesn't change. This is what Theologians call the doctrine of God's immutability. God's love isn't fickle. God doesn't break his promises. God isn't angry in the Old Testament and loving in the New. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is always loving. He is always just. He is always righteous. He is always wise. He is who he is. And he always will be who he will be. And that will never change. Well, what about Jesus? Does Jesus change? That is an especially relevant question for Easter because the resurrection was an incredibly changing experience. Jesus went from dying to rising from the dead. He went from the cross to the empty tomb. Jesus went from having a body like ours, subject to sickness and death, to having a resurrected body, a glorified body that will never die again. The body of Jesus certainly changed. But what about his heart? What about the heart of Jesus? Did the heart of Jesus change after the resurrection? Did the one who was humble and compassionate, gentle and lowly before his resurrection become something different after his resurrection? We may be tempted to draw that conclusion, especially when we look at the depictions of the risen Christ in the book of Revelation. You may recall in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus appears to the the apostle John, the same apostle who wrote the gospel of John. And he appears to John as one with hair as white as snow. His eyes are like flames of fire. His feet are like burnished bronze. And his voice is like the roar of many waters. His appearance is so glorious that, that John, the one who describes himself as the one whom Jesus loved, who is part of Jesus' inner circle of of three apostles who who walked with him in an especially close way. John couldn't stay standing. Instead, he, he fell on his feet, prostrate as though dead. The risen Christ 
has clearly changed in appearance because the, the physical manifestation of his glory is no longer concealed, but revealed. But his heart, his heart remains the same. Right after John falls to his feet, uh, he, he, he writes about how this, this glorious being whom he cannot help but worship lays his right hand on his shoulder. And he says to him, fear not, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. Well, today I want to show you that the heart of Jesus never changes. Even after Jesus had conquered death, even after Jesus had defeated Satan, paid for our sins and risen from the dead, the heart of Jesus remained the same. And that is why we can be confident that the heart of Jesus will always remain the same. He will always remain our humble servant king who loves us. So the title of this sermon is The Unchanging Heart of the Risen Christ. The Unchanging Heart of the Risen Christ. And I want to show you three things about the heart of the risen Christ today. First, the risen Christ serves. Second, the risen Christ loves. And third, the risen Christ calls. Let's begin with the risen Christ serves. John chapter 21 is actually the longest appearance of the risen Christ in any of the four gospel accounts of the life of Jesus. But what stands out about this text isn't its length, but its stunning simplicity. John tells us in verse 1 that this chapter is about Jesus revealing himself again to the disciples. It appears that after Jesus rose from the dead and he appeared to the disciples, he didn't stay with them all the time. He, he came and he went at different times and in different places. Verse 14 says that this particular appearance was the third time that Jesus revealed himself to the disciples after his resurrection. The scene begins with these seven disciples gathered by the Sea of Tiberias, which was another name for the Sea of Galilee. And the seven disciples were Simon Peter, the leader of the twelve the one who had denied Jesus three times before the rooster crowed as Jesus prophesied. Thomas, who is also known as Doubting Thomas, the, the disciple who, who doubted the accounts of the resurrection, said, I will not believe until I can see his hands and his feet and the, and the pierced side that, that, that resulted from the spear that, that was pierced into his body as he hung on the cross. Nathaniel, who was the same man who doubted whether anything good could come from Galilee in John chapter 1. The sons of Zebedee, who are James and John, John of course being the gospel writer, and two other unnamed disciples. Now these seven disciples just seem to be hanging out together. They're just enjoying a day off by the beach without having much to do. And that was appropriate for them because Jesus had told them to wait. To wait until the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit would be poured on them, and they would be clothed with power from on high, and they would be sent out to preach the gospel to the nations. And so they are waiting. They are waiting. And while they are waiting, verse 3 tells us that Simon Peter decides, I'm going fishing. He's, he's ever the spontaneous leader. He doesn't ask those who are with him, do you guys want to go fishing? Hey, I'm going fishing. Do you want to join me? He says, I'm, I'm going fishing. I'm, I'm going to go do something. And the other six, they are happy to follow him. They agree, and together they go out in the boat and they fish. And they fish all night. They, they choose the night because that's when the water on the surface of the Sea of Galilee isn't so hot. 
And so the fish are coming from the, the bottom of the sea to go and, and eat. And they're more likely to catch them if they're fishing at night. But all night long, they don't catch a single thing. I don't know about you, but if I were fishing for 10 minutes and I didn't catch a fish, I would give up. I mean, I know there are some fishermen here. I'm, I'm not a fisherman personally, but I mean, that's one of the reasons why I don't fish. It takes way too long. And if I were fishing all night, you know, skipping my, my, my sleep, skipping my time with my family, I didn't catch a single fish, I'd be quite frustrated. And we see signs of that later on in this text. Verse four says that just as day was breaking, the sun is rising, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. That's because, of course, verse eight says the boat was about 100 yards off. They couldn't quite make out who it was. But then this stranger calls out to them in verse five and says, children, do you have any fish? The Greek is actually a little bit more um, comical. It, it expects a negative answer. It's more like, boys, you haven't caught any fish, have you? And the rugged fishermen who've been fishing all night, who, of course, I'm sure had confidence in their fishing abilities, who had not caught a single fish, provide a terse reply. No, that's it. No explanation, no invitation for conversation, just no, go away. We don't want to talk to you. But this stranger, he wants to help them, not discourage them. And so in verse six, he says, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. Now you can imagine if you were fishing all night, you might have said, don't you think we tried the right side of the boat? I mean, we've we, we been fishing all night. We, we are seasoned, experienced fishers of fish. We know how to catch fish. We, we would have caught fish if there were any fish in this sea to catch. We didn't catch anything. You would have expected them to respond that way, but they don't. Because something about him at this point had caught their attention. You may recall on an earlier occasion in Luke chapter five, Simon Peter and his crew had spent another night, an entire night fishing, and they had not caught anything on that night either, and Jesus had come, and he had told them to go out again and to cast their net into the sea. And the result was they caught so many fish that their nets were breaking, and their two paired fishing boats began to sink under the weight of all the fish that they had caught. And so, they decide to listen to this stranger's advice. And verse six continues, they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Verse seven says, that disciple whom Jesus loved, that is the gospel writer John, he, he realizes what's going on here. He makes the connections, the, the dots are coming together in his mind and he says to Peter, it is the Lord. John knew that it was Jesus. I mean, who else could possess such divine knowledge that he knew exactly when and where this huge school of fish would be. He remembered Jesus teaching them in the Sermon on the Mount, if no sparrow can fall to the ground except by the will of God, then no fish can swim to the right side of this boat at this moment apart from the will of Christ. Peter responds yet again, 
with this characteristic, spontaneous enthusiasm. Verse 7 says, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, likely to keep him warm as he's in the cold water, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. There he goes, swimming back to shore. He doesn't think about whether that would be the fastest way to get back, the best way to get back. All he thinks is, I need to see Jesus right now. I need to hear his voice for himself. I need to see him with my own eyes, and I'm getting there. The other disciples were no doubt equally enthusiastic, but not quite as impulsive. Verse 8 says that the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards off. What a beautiful picture of how different people respond to Jesus in different ways. Some are going to be like Peter. They're going to be exuberant. They're going to be spontaneous. They're going to be expressive. It's going to be a little messy. While others are going to be a little more practical. They're going to make plans. Okay, what are we going to need before we come to Jesus? What would Jesus want us to bring and John and the disciples, it's not like they loved the fish more than they loved Jesus. No, they remembered that, that Jesus is the one who told them to catch these fish. So they figured, well, they, it would be better for them to bring the fish with them as they prepare to meet their Lord. Now, verse 9 describes the remarkable scene that awaited them when they returned to the shore. It says, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish, with fish laid out on it and bread. What a, what a striking scene. I mean, it's striking because of how ordinary it is. I mean, Jesus, the, the risen Christ, the one who had just paid for the sins of his people, who had conquered death, who had risen from the grave, Jesus is cooking breakfast for them. The risen Christ had humbled himself yet again to serve his servants. The first had become last, the greatest had become the least. The master had become the servant once again. The one who had stooped down to wash the feet of his, of his disciples before the resurrection is now cooking breakfast for them after the resurrection. Now you might think Christ revealed in his glory. His, his, his glory, his power is no longer concealed but revealed. He, he might have done something easier than setting a charcoal fire, laying out fish, waiting for them to cook, and warming up the bread on this homemade fire. He, he could have turned stones into bread. He could have ordered and commanded angels to do the cooking for them. He could have waited and commanded his disciples to cook breakfast for this little group, but instead, he humbles himself to serve them, and he cooks it himself. But his service didn't stop there. Jesus invites them to bring some of the fish they had just caught so that he can cook even more for them. So Peter, again, he responds first by going on board the ship and hauling the entire net full of large fish. Simon Peter, he's a strong man. He's, he's, he truly is a fisherman, and he's pulling this net full of 153 fish, no doubt counted because the fishermen would be dividing them amongst themselves later on. And he found that the net was not torn. Yet another sign that this was no ordinary event, but one orchestrated by the Son of God. And Jesus invites them in verse 12, come, come and have breakfast. Come, come and eat with me. Come and have table fellowship with me. Come 
and enjoy this simple meal of fish and bread by the sea. But they're not sure how to respond. Verse 12 says, now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord, but they still wanted to ask because there was something strikingly different about him. There were times when Jesus appeared to his disciples and they didn't recognize him. There's something different about him. There's something similar, yes, but there's also something different. And they couldn't put their finger on it and yet they couldn't bring themselves to ask. And why was that? Why did they dare not to ask? Well, we have to try to put ourselves in their shoes. I mean, they had just seen Jesus hanging on a Roman cross. They had seen the sky turn black. They had felt the earth tremble. And they had heard Jesus breathe his last when he cried out, it is finished. They saw the spear pierce his side. They saw his limp body taken down from the cross and buried in Joseph's tomb. They saw Jesus die. And yet here he was before them, living, breathing, talking, cooking. Their crucified savior brought back to life and they were speechless. The crucified Christ had risen again, but his heart, his heart was the same. They may have been hanging back. They were slow to approach him, but, but he was not slow to approach them. Verse 13 says, Jesus came and he took the bread and he gave it to them. And so with the fish. My friends, this, this is the heart, not only of the crucified Christ, but of the risen Christ. He, he remains a servant, strong and kind, gentle and lowly, mighty and meek. That's what he was like before his resurrection, and that's what he was like after his resurrection. Because there was no point in time when Jesus had to learn what it meant to be humble. Jesus didn't become humble when he took on human flesh. His humility was what compelled him to take on human flesh in the first place. Jesus was and Jesus is. Jesus always will be our humble servant king. The second point, the risen Christ loves. Verse 15 says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? I mean, that's what Peter had been saying all along before the crucifixion. You know, Peter saying, even if all these deny you, I will not deny you. I will go with you to your death. Well, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter replies, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, feed my lambs. The lambs, of course, referring to his flock, his people, those whom he shed his blood to save. Then in verse 16, Jesus asks a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter replies, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus says again, tend my sheep. Verse 17 says, Jesus asks a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And this time Peter is grieved because he asked him the third time. He, didn't, he, he, interprets, he interprets it as Jesus not believing his words. And he says, Lord, you know everything. If you know where the fish are in the sea, you know the hidden thoughts of my heart. You know that I love you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. 
Three questions, three responses, and three commands. No doubt meant to replicate the three denials that Peter made of Christ as he headed to the cross. Three times Peter was asked, aren't you a follower of that man? And three times he had denied it and said, no, I don't know the man. I don't know what you're talking about. Those three denials would now be replaced by these three statements of his love for Jesus. Do you see the point? This, this isn't just repetition. This is redemption. It was Jesus' way of telling Peter that he was giving him a second chance. That his denials would not define who he was or how he related to Jesus moving forward. And what he wanted Peter to do with this second chance was to feed, tend to, and care for his flock. Jesus is showing Peter that he loves him. As much as Jesus is the one asking Peter, Peter, do you love me? The the more important lesson here is that Jesus still loves Peter. It was the love of Jesus that was willing to give the love of Peter a second chance. In his commentary on the Gospel of John, Leon Morris writes this, his actions, that is Peter's actions, showed that Peter had not wanted a crucified Lord, but Jesus was crucified. How did Peter's devotion stand in the light of this? Was he ready to love Christ as he was? and not as Peter wished him to be? That is the question. Peter didn't want a crucified Messiah. He he wanted a triumphant one. It was Peter who rebuked Jesus for saying that he was about to die. Do you remember that? He took him aside, and that's when Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, for you do not have the things of God in mind, but the things of man. It was Peter who had denied knowing Jesus because he was not willing to suffer with Jesus as he went to the cross. But Jesus, Jesus did not write him off. Jesus did not cancel him. Jesus did not blacklist him. Jesus did not plunge him down the organizational depth chart. Instead, he recommissions him. He redeploys him to the most sacred task of all, caring for the flock of the good shepherd. That's the other lesson that we learn from these verses. The heart of Christ is a heart of love, not just for the Peters of the world, but for the flock that Peter was sent to care for. The flock was on his heart. You you were on his heart post-resurrection. As Christ rose from the dead and as he gave final instructions to his apostles and to his disciples, his flock was on his heart. And he wanted to make sure that they would be cared for, tended for, and fed. We know about the Great Commission, of course, in Matthew 28, the Great Commission to go and make disciples. But this is an equally great commission to feed the flock because this is the mission that Jesus gave Peter shortly before he ascended to heaven. And when we give the last words of Jesus special weight That is why we call that commission in Matthew 28 the Great Commission. But these also are Jesus' last words to his apostles. Feed my sheep, tend my flock, care for my lambs. Jesus, he did not move on to bigger and better things after he rose from the dead. The burden of the risen Christ remained and remains for all whom the Father has given him. Because Jesus is the good shepherd. 
the, the, the sheep belonged to him. He, the reason why he died was to lay down his life for the sheep. As we saw on Good Friday in Isaiah chapter 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, if Jesus died for his sheep, how much more is he ready to stand and provide for the sheep that he died for? This was his burning desire after his resurrection, that, that, that his sheep would be cared for. And one of the ways he would care for them was to send out, deploy, and commission under shepherds who would care for his flock, feed them with his word, and lead them into his everlasting arms. And we must never forget that the mission of the church is not just evangelistic. The mission of the church is pastoral. We are to go and make disciples, but we are to also make sure that those who are disciples are cared for, tended to, and fed with the nourishment of God's word. We are to have an equal commitment to those who do not yet belong to the flock and those who already belong to the flock, because that is what Jesus wanted. And so if you love the shepherd, you will love his sheep. Because it is by loving the sheep that you love the shepherd. Lastly, the risen Christ calls. John concludes his conversation with Peter in verse 18 with a prophecy. That is a bit of a characteristic in terms of the relationship between Jesus and Peter. Jesus had prophesied that Peter would deny him three times and now Jesus prophesied the kind of death that awaited Peter to show him, to show him that this sacred task of feeding his flock would not be easy. It would not have a happy ending, at least not in this lifetime. Jesus tells him that when he is old, he'll lose all the liberty he had as a young man. He will stretch out his hands like a child and another will dress him and another will carry him where he does not want to go. But still, Still, Peter must follow him. And I can't help but note that this prophecy, as hard as it may have been, Jesus does not prophesy that Peter will deny him. That is not part of the prophecy. Peter will suffer. He will suffer for the name of Christ, but he will pass the test this time. And he will hold fast to the faith. He will endure to the end. Church history tells us that Peter was indeed executed for his faith, likely during the reign of the emperor Nero, who used Christians as human torches in the city. Some later records even say that Peter was crucified upside down by his choice because he did not count himself to be worthy to be executed in the same way as his Lord. But before any of that happened, before he would suffer this gruesome death before this prophecy would be fulfilled, Peter would be given 30 years. 30 years from the giving of this prophecy to its fulfillment. 30 years to show and demonstrate his love for his Lord by caring for his sheep. But Peter has questions, not regarding himself, but regarding John. Verses 20 and 21 say, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. He asked, Lord, what about this man? You've told me what's going to happen with me, but can you tell me what's going to happen to him? No doubt, Peter is looking for a co-sufferer 
you know, this, this is really bad for me. Well, maybe it's going to be really bad for him and that'll make me feel better. What's going to happen with him? Jesus responds in effect by saying, well, it's none of your business. Verse 22 says, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Now this led to the silly myth among the early church that John would not die and he did indeed live till he was an old man and they all thought that that was what Jesus prophesied, that John would not die and John corrects that myth here in verse 23. But the main point here is that all of us are called to follow Jesus but not all of us are called to follow Jesus in exactly the same way. All of us are called to obey the same commands. All of us are called to believe the same doctrines, but not all of us are called to live the same lives. We all have our own stories to live out in obedience to Christ. And it would be wrong for us to base our expectations of what will come in our lives on what is happening on the lives of others. It would be wrong for us to grumble about our lot in life by saying, well, what about them? Why do I have to suffer like this and they don't? Why does their life look so much better than mine? Why can't I have the gifts that they do? John is teaching us that those questions find no place in the Christian life because they don't come from a heart of gratitude and worship and obedience to Jesus, but out of a heart of envy and jealousy. We are to follow Christ according to the distinct story that he has written for each one of us. Yes, we are to look at the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ, but not as an occasion to grumble about our own lives, but in order to be encouraged by their faith and to be spurred on in our walk with Christ. This may be hard for us to accept, but there are things that we will never know. And there are things that we are never meant to know. And that is because we are not God. I mean, it may be hard for us to recognize that because we like to be the functional gods of our lives, don't we? We like to control. We like to plan. We, we like to know what, exactly what's coming next. But we are not God. God is God. And it is his business and his business alone to know all things. From where the fish in the sea are to how his people will die. And it is our business to follow and to trust Jesus. John ends this chapter and his gospel account of the life of Jesus in verse 25. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. What a beautiful ending. The Bible is sufficient for us in that it tells us everything that we need to be saved and everything that we need to live a godly life, but it does not tell us everything we could possibly know about Jesus because the infinite cannot be contained within the finite. The scriptures, yes, they give us true and accurate and unchanging glimpses of the heart of Christ, but if we were to see that heart, that great heart displayed in the fullness of its glory, We would need to read books contained in a library that exceeds the size of the earth. An endless catalog of what Jesus has done. 
And that is because Jesus was not just at work in the three years of his earthly ministry. Jesus was at work since the beginning of creation as the one through whom and for whom and to whom everything exists. Jesus is at work through the church, the body of Christ, accomplishing his purposes through the ordinary lives of believers. And he is at work in every single one of our lives, every single day, every single breath, orchestrated, planned, sustained by him and part of his catalog of works. And so the question that the scriptures leave with us today is, are you ready to follow this Jesus? Are you ready to follow the risen Christ? Wherever you may be in your relationship with Jesus, he is calling you like he called Peter, like he called John, like he called me. He is calling you to follow him. Will you hear the risen Christ? Will you hear the servant king? Will you hear the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep? Will you hear him calling you to walk with him, to know him, and to see him at work in your life and in the lives of those around you? He is unlike anyone that you have ever met, and he is unlike anyone you will ever meet, full of grace and truth, righteous and merciful, holy and humble. My friends, following Jesus will not keep you from suffering, but it will give you the strength to persevere through your suffering because you know, you know that not a drop of your pain will be wasted. The the Lord of the heavens and the earth who knows all things also ordains all things. And even the pain in your life is ordained for your good so that you would know him more, cherish him more and find deeper joy in him. And one day, And this is the great hope of of Resurrection Sunday. One day, all of that pain, all of that suffering, all of our trials will be swallowed up and redeemed by resurrection as all who have died will rise again with him. Some will rise to everlasting life and others will rise to everlasting judgment. And the difference between them isn't that some were good enough and some weren't but that some trusted in Christ and that others didn't. And so come, follow the risen Christ, crucified for your sins and risen again to live forever. Trust in his sacrifice on the cross for your sins and rise again to eternal life and to the eternal joy of knowing him. He invites you to eat with him, not just to have a quaint breakfast by the sea, but to have an unending feast of his love that he has prepared for you to enjoy. Jesus is the servant king. Jesus is the good shepherd and he is our faithful Lord. And so come and follow him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you for the resurrection. We worship you for you are no longer dead but alive forevermore. And all who are in you, all who belong to you, will live forevermore beside you and with you. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would continue to reveal your unchanging heart, that we might see the perfection of humanity and the glory of God himself meet together in one man, 
the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might worship you, obey you, and imitate you. May people around us see you in us as we bear witness to your saving power. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.